Hi, I'm Merlin Vanderbram, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Hi, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. This week, I speak to Merlin van der Brom. Merlin is the Head of Coach Development and Support at the LTA. We chat about planning and securing the future of British tennis, monitoring coaching standards, helping parents who coach their children, getting more females into coaching, psychology and player development, and he tells us who his tennis goat is. And for those that don't know what the goat is, it's the greatest of all time. It's a big debate that's always going on and everybody has their own opinion. So great to hear why people pick their goat. Before we get started, a shout out to Slinger Bag. Slinger are our long-term podcast sponsors. They help us run this podcast, allow us to have a producer. And yeah, thank you very much, Slinger. But if you want to know more about their awesome portable ball machine, head over to slingerbag.com. All the details are there. If you have any burning questions, please let me know or you can ask the Slinger Bag team on their Instagram account. I use my Slinger Bag quite a bit, so I'm more than qualified to answer. I'd like to think that. But here we go. Let's get straight in to our chat with Merlin. Hi, Merlin. Welcome to Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Morning, Fabio. I'm very well, thank you. Great to have you on. I don't get the opportunity to meet most of my guests in person before we record. And I was lucky enough to meet you in Dublin last month, which was great because I think it makes the the episode a lot better when there's a bit more of a relationship with, with a person. So yeah, excited to have you on here, get your thoughts on the future of coaching, the future of securing great players for Britain and hopefully can help some other federations out there and also a bit more what you do. But maybe you can start off by telling us what is your role, just a little bit on your background and we'll give people a good insight into what you do for the LTA. Super. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for for having me on, Fabio. I'm a keen fan of all your content, so appreciate you inviting me to speak and, and sharing my thoughts and experiences. In my role, I'm Head of Coach Development and Support at the LTA, which is the, the governing body for tennis in Great Britain. Their sort of vision and mission is to, to open tennis up, trying to make it more relevant, accessible, welcoming and enjoyable to try and get tennis to more people basically alongside sort of developing players and 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 governing the sport my role specifically looks at the coach development infrastructure so the education system for tennis coaches and also the licensing and professional development so my background actually i i grew up in ireland my first taste of tennis was in carrick and shure county tipperary i played for a couple of years had to stop playing. I took up golf because basically there's no one to play and no coaches. Eventually took up tennis sort of quite late at 14, playing in Waterford and St. Anne's. And I had a great coach there in, in William Gary who who uh, helped develop me and inspired me to sort of actually get into coaching a bit. So I played to a sort of okay level. I played university first team and decided that university degree would probably be the best route. Studied psychology and then went on to sport and exercise psychology. So I was sort of going down that athlete development route, but also 
was was getting big into coaching and then was coaching full time, but just felt that after a few years of coaching that, that I, I sort of really enjoyed the the sort of intellectual stimulation of, of kind of psychology and all of those areas. And I ended up working for the ITF out in Valencia in Spain in their coach development and research department and was there for five almost yeah five years before starting with the LTA about seven years ago and was looking after coach uh, engagement and and CPD and now looking after the sort of broader remit of all things coaches more in the grassroots and development space. Great great quick question while you mentioned CBD points there can anybody just say here is a course and coaches can get CPD points from it or does it have to be approved by the LTA? If you're doing a, a CPD course, there's sort of two routes. There's the official LTA's curriculum, which we work with the industry to author. So we'll work with practitioners and expert coaches and we'll then sort of publish publish those courses so coaches can book them. But we also have a strand of, of learning called independent learning, which allows the coach to choose the learning that's right for them. They can choose any format, any subject from any provider and they submit a learning reflection to the LTA and they can get credits through that more flexible approach as well. So if Functional Tennis holds a webinar on, let's say, tennis nutrition for 14 to 18-year-old high-performance juniors and some of your coaches were to interested in that, they watch the webinar, can they potentially get some points from that webinar? In short, yes, if they complete a learning reflection, what that helps the LTA to understand is what's been done with who and, and when. And also how much, you know, because one credit is one hour in our system. But it also helps them to retain the information. Often we go to an event or we listen to a podcast and we kind of forget. It sounds great, interesting, but then nothing changes. But the learner reflection sort of forces the person to really think, okay, what am I going to do differently now as a result of this learning? And they also remember everything a lot better because most people forget about 80% of what they they sort of learn in the first few days. I've, I've read research around that. So so retaining it by sort of being forced to recall it does certainly help. And that's that process re- encourages that. Yeah, that, that's good. That's good. So yeah, it's, it's something that we, we've got into last year. We're trying to get into a lot more moving forward. But you've been given the hands to secure the future of British tennis over the next 10 years. You're putting building blocks in place for coaches to find players, train players, get them to the top of the game. Maybe you can tell us what does that involve and how are you securing the future of British tennis through, through coaching? Well, I mean, uh, first I'll have to say I'm uh, certainly not uh, not all with me. There's the, in, in the LTA, at least, we're quite a large governing body. There are two roles. Mine's sort of very much the foundation, grassroots and development side. And then we've got sort of former Davis Cup coach Nick Wheel, who leads performance coach education and support because it's a very different type of support that a, a touring coach needs on the road 35 weeks of the year versus someone who's operating a large grassroots club. So we do have those two roles. So it's not all sitting at me and I'm certainly not, I hope I'm not responsible for the, the players in a decade, but I do, I you know seriously think coaching is a critical piece of the puzzle for player development and, and therefore future professional players in Britain. It's, you know, coaching is a key tool in the tennis development puzzle that sits alongside, you know, really good competition structure and other things. So, you know, Foundations of player development rely on great coaching. You know, they develop skillful players 
you know, and they need to do that with a long-term athletic development focus, you know, as opposed to getting quick wins and making players really good at the age of 10 or 11, but then they lack the sort of fundamental attributes to go on and be successful for the adult and senior games. So, you know, coaching, it's, 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 a, it's a real responsibility. You can make or break players and really put a glass ceiling on their capabilities if you don't do a great job. And, and I think, um, you know, we know that tennis is a long-term journey. The average age of the top 100 has, you know, certainly as a general trend been getting older. It's now well into the 20s, late 20s. So, you know, even at the age of 18, you might have another decade before you break the top 100. And we also know that until you're in the top 100 or top 150, roughly, you're not making a living. So really, you become a professional when you're making a living. So if that's, you know, a, a, a rough late 20s, it's it's a long journey and a coach can help out with everything from motivation to long-term tactical and game development through to just keeping healthy as an athlete. And I think, you know, again, another key characteristic of tennis is different to some sports. It's an it's what we call an early initiation, but late specialization sport. It, what that means is you've got to start early, but you shouldn't specialize early. So that's different to, say, rowing, where you can actually start pretty late. You know, a lot of the talent ID for rowing for the Olympics, you know, my friend at the age of 21 was attending talent ID for rowing. You just wouldn't hear or see that in tennis, you know. So, you know, because it's such a long period of development, coaches play a hugely important role. And the qualification structures that we have in place, the curriculums and what they learn, you know, how to teach, but also how players learn and how they develop skill is absolutely critical, I, I think, for, for, you know, if we're going to have successful players, but also plenty of happy players at grassroots, just, just, just loving the game because they can serve, rally and score and, and enjoy the merits of tennis. And what do you mean by not specialising? Is it they can play multiple sports? Exactly. I think, you know, there's a temptation to think if I, you know, the more tennis we play, as you know, this is certainly good advice, I think, for parents, the more tennis we play at a young age, the better. But actually what happens is they they lack a sort of general athletic development that you might get from, you know, team sports, you know, a blend of, you say, football, tennis and others where, you know, they're just testing themselves physically or from a coordination perspective. So differently you can get sort of quite siloed and one-dimensional if you just play one sport you can also enjoy it less because there's no variety so that leads to more burnout if you're specializing early and from an injury prevention perspective if all that you do is play tennis you're, you're loading the same limbs tendons and muscles in the same way whereas you know you, you take have a cycle or a swim in between a game of tennis that's that's good physical activity but it's it's t- it's testing the body in a different way so you know, everything from psychological to physiological reasons, laser specialization. So, you know, take after puberty is, is, is seen as much better. So basically, if you playing loads of sports until the time you hit puberty and then you start to focus post puberty on tennis, that's the most healthy way of approaching athlete development. Interesting. And you mentioned parents there. We do have a lot of parent listeners here who coach d- their own children, some are fortunate enough that have coaches they can afford but coaching is very expensive especially for as you move into that puberty stage where they're on court a lot more they need to be working with coaches a lot more but for parents who want to coach their own children from your experience what advice do you have for them and how can they be 
better coaches? So I think my first protocol would be if you can engage a qualified and expert coach, I would certainly look to try and do that. You know, it's not always a requirement that you have private lessons. I think there's an assumption that you need private lessons, but actually, you know, there are ways to engage coaches that are more affordable. So I'd always start with that because, you know, coaches have spent their life in the game and learned those long-term technical and tactical development frameworks that I, I mentioned earlier. But you know, if if you are in the position where you you you, you sort of ha- you are coaching or taking a, a lead role in your child's development, you know, definitely a few things of advice would be to exercise caution. If you're learning from YouTube, there's there's a lot of what I call chocolate out there. It looks great, but it's not necessarily good for you. And there's a lot of poor advice. You know, there's for example, as a general trend, there's a huge amount of technical videos and coaching online. But we know when you look at how a child learns, too much technical information is actually not that good for them. And so actually, if, if all you're seeing online is technical videos and that therefore that's all you're teaching and thinking about is technique, that will develop the player not really in an optimal way. And, you know, tactically what's happening, that's just as important as technique. So definitely exercise caution on YouTube. Other advice I would say is, you know, ensure they're having fun. Don't lose sight that it is a game and that there's a huge amount that you can take from tennis no matter what your level so you know when you're calling your own lines in a tournament that's testing your integrity and honesty you know you're learning to keep score and you know being disciplined and managing your school timetable with your tennis timetable you know that that is a skill that you then bring to university and suddenly you're able to handle things a lot better than someone that might not have had you know, tennis is a big part of their life. And so you take a huge amount away for it. So it's important not to lose sight of the fact that it is a game and to have fun. And it's not that important if if you're not developing on a trajectory to be top 100 in the world, because we know only less than 1% will make a living from the game. So you know, take it in that context. And if you're out and about at tournaments, I think make yourself as useful as possible. So do some match charting. So, you know, maybe one tournament, you look at the number of unforced errors, uh, the next tournament, you chart how many winners off their forehand and backhand side they make. So you can start to help uh, inform their development using data that they can't collect if they're in the heat of a match. But you can sit there on the sideline and get all that information that helps feed into a plan for their development. So if they're not hitting any winners in a match, maybe they need a more aggressive game style. That's certainly something that would be needed for the for, for the adult game. You might be really successful at under 12 hitting no errors but no winners but that won't for the long term help so th- i think ha- match charging and supporting your your child and with objective data can be really helpful as well and is there anything else that stands out for let's say kids who do have coaches what else can the parents do to help aid the coach maybe you're going to say stay away from the coach but uh, apart from match charting is a big one that parents seem to do is there anything else that would help a coach uh, I think that, you know, working as a team, you know, it's a three-way relationship, making sure you trust the coach with, you know, if, you, if you're if you working with a coach, you got to trust them. So if that trust's not there, then maybe you need to change coach. But if you have them, you got to trust them. I think, you know, just open lines of communication. Yeah, plenty, plenty you can do there. But I think just having a good, aligning your goals, making sure that you're all on the same page is probably a really important one as well. Okay. Now, let's move back on to the the coaching. What are you doing to secure the level and the standards 
in coaching. So again, people are putting their hard-earned money into coaches and they want to make sure, obviously they trust the coach, but what the, what the coach is teaching their child will benefit their child the most rather than just taking funds and the kid doesn't really learn. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think when I look at the curriculums that are, uh, certainly I can speak for the LTA's curriculums, which I know well, the frameworks that a coach will learn are, you know, first of all is how do children learn What's the optimum way for them to learn? Stages of learning. And then how do you give instruction? How do you observe and analyze a player's individual needs? And how do you develop that in, in a way that sort of builds performance, but also confidence? So there's all of that going into the the curriculums alongside all the basics like, you know, health and safety, making sure that you, you've got, you understand safeguarding and that's critical. But the, I guess there's a number of approaches that are sort of some proactive and then some reactive things where at a system level, we have a qualification infrastructure where you, you know, you, you have to be qualified in order to be accredited and therefore deliver tennis. And in some industries, you, you don't necessarily need a formal qualification. You can get away yeah. without one. And, and actually in a lot of countries around the world, tennis coaching, you know, you can kind of get away with maybe being a player and not having a qualification. Whereas certainly in the UK, there's a system of qualification and accreditation. And if you're working in a registered venue, essentially you have to be accredited, which demonstrates to the the customers or the parents or the venues that, They've been qualified, they're competent, they're safe to practice and that they're regularly doing professional development to stay on top of the latest developments of the game. So that's that's a big one. We also invest a lot in the tutors. So that's the coach of the coach. It's pretty rigorous training to be a tutor. You learn how to educate adults. That's uh, like andragogy. So how adults learn. Pedagogy is how children learn. So, you know, how do you create a really safe learning climate for adults who, you know, it's a different beast there. You know, they're, they're stuck in their ways, a lot more experience. You know, how do you, how do you help someone who maybe... 20, 30, 40 years old, learn, uh, you know, that old dog, new tricks is quite a challenge. So that's a real skill. And we, we invest a lot in our coach developers. Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. A big listener of the podcast is Chris Suter, who does some great work for Scottish Tennis and the LTA. Is he a coach to the coaches? Yeah, Chris is a good example of of, uh, of a, a coach developer, or we call him tutor here. Very experienced, uh, very credible guy and very passionate about the game, yes. If Chris is listening, hi Chris. Uh, <laughs> you always put up some great content online. But maybe you can tell us really quickly, Merlin, the different level of coaches in the UK. I know it's different in every country. There's different standards. What are the LTA standards? So the levels of coaching in the UK, essentially the levels are a little bit misleading. Ultimately, the qualifications are there to develop a role that exists in the industry. We have five levels, but the levels really represent the volume of training and the commitment. It's not that one is better than the other. It's just the pathway that you go on. So the first qualification is LTA assistant. That's positioned at level one, and it's it's a week it's a weekend. It's it's two days split out with a month in between to get four hours of work experience, and that's so critical in the qualifications that you get the practical work experience, not just the kind of theory. Then there's there's level two, which is the LTA instructor. 
and you've got your LTA coach at level three and then you've got senior coach at four and master coach at five and that sort of 10, 15, 20 years experience generally speaking, is the kind of European definition of an, a senior and a master coach. There's there's then beyond that, there's the coach developer qualification, which you could say is like a level six. But again, it's it's more about the role, not the level. Okay, great. And moving on to sticking in, sorry, still in coaching females. What's the percentage of female coaches currently in the UK? And are you doing anything to improve those numbers? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are, generally speaking, more males than females in sports coaching and tennis is is no different. We have roughly 24% of our LTA accredited coaches are female. So we are driving initiatives to try and change that. There's been a lot of great work happening uh, in the UK for a number of years. From a qualification perspective, uh, within qualifications, the organizations that we work with to deliver qualifications, they're called coach development centers. We provide grant funding to them to try and attract and retain more females. So for example, last year we had a real push. We have about 30% of the people that do a level one will be female, but it slowly drops off as you go up. So we went for a real push to get to 40%, knowing that, you know, if it's going to drop, let's start from a higher number. And we had some real successes there, you know, social media campaigns, targeting all girls schools, county cup teams that were female. And we got up to 35% of all people doing a level one were female, which is a big achievement in one year. So things like that we're, we're doing to try and attract more people into the game. But equally, you've got to retain them. You know, we, we do some small things like we have introduced a maternity policy. If you're a female professional coach and you need a break from the game, obviously, to, to raise a child, we, we give sort of a relief period where you don't have to do your CPD credits, but you can maintain your accreditation plus status, which is the top status in the country. But, you know, that, that only goes so far that we need to do more to understand the challenges and obstacles for females, why they don't see coaching maybe is an attractive profession and it's a really interesting topic and there's certainly more we can learn about it because you know you look at some industries and they're female dominant and then in other industries they're male dominant and you know they're sticky challenges but we're certainly there's more we can do in addition to what i just mentioned to try and up the number of female coaches and and female players because ultimately most coaches will come from playing so that's an important focus too yeah true good point there regarding to trying to get more females but i, I think britain has done a great job with female players unfortunately as we're recording this emma radicanu just lost so oh, it's, that yes. is that's terrible news but look she's been amazing she's so good for the game and it's it's great like there's plenty of british players so you've d- there's been a great job done there so far but an area you're very you're super keen on is psychology what have you done to i don't bring more of a psychology element into the game and into the coaching world and how coaches can help players through psychology so it's a real passion of mine, as I mentioned earlier, you know, alongside coaching, I, I studied psychology at University College Dublin for three years and then went into full-time coaching and then went back to, to study a master's in sport and exercise psychology. For me, it was a fascinating area. It's something that I think I struggled with. I think I had lovely technique and I understood the tactics of the game, but at pressure points, I always found that I wasn't quite performing at what my capability was and I, I put that down to psychology and you know it plays a huge role tennis is tough there's a few stats that I, I always recite when talking about psychology that 
you know, in 2016, and I think in most years, not a single player between 51 and 100 in the world had a winning record. You know, they're losing more matches than they're winning, and that's quite unique. That wouldn't happen in Premiership football, for example, you know. Yeah. Federer has only won 51% of the points in his whole career, but he's got 20 grand slams and, and arguably the greatest player that's ever lived. So that implies that almost half of everything he plays, he's losing. So there's a lot of loss built into tennis. That's challenging. And then you've got things like there's no referee. You're calling your own lines. I mean, imagine if you did that in football. It would be carnage at under 10, you know. You know, you're not allowed to get coaching during a match. You've got to figure it out for yourself. And you can't wind the clock down. You've got to get to the finish line. Whereas in a match, if you're 2-0 up in football again or whatever it is, you just need to kind of, you can play a bit more defensive and wait for the clock to, to, to run out. Whereas tennis, that that isn't there for you. So, there's skills needed from a psychological perspective because there are demands placed on you through tennis, which is good. You know, you, you learn a lot. And it's just like I always use physical development as an analogy. You know, you need flexibility, you need strength, and you need to proactively develop those physical skills to be able to play at a high level. And the mental side is no different, really. It shouldn't just be brought in when something's gone wrong, psychology. You need to be proactive. And just like you have a conditioning coach and a physio, you know, imagine if you never worked on conditioning, you'd always be at the physio. And, and, and I think psychology is no different. So I like to position psychology as really important. And we've used, we, 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 we sort of integrate that into the curriculum to a much greater extent now than I think was ever done before. So coaches are learning about motivational climate you know, and, and that essentially says, you know, what do you value in a tennis session? What do the players perceive as valuable? Is it just winning all the time? Or actually, if we work hard, is the coach going to praise and thank us for that? Is that rewarded? And that, that sort of motivation climate makes it makes a big impact on, on the long term enjoyment. A lot of research shows that. So that's a good example of where we're embedding psychology at a very base level for, for our assistant coaches. And then as you go further up the, the sort of coach spectrum, you know, much more expertise built in. And we use a model that Chris Harwood at Loughborough University has sort of created and the ITF use a lot as well. It's the sort of five C's where you, you focus on uh, developing uh, control of emotion, great concentration, great commitment, which is sort of synonymous for motivation and, and then confidence. And the fifth one is communication and that sort of parent coach athlete. So if you, if you're doing well in all those areas, you're probably going to be in a good place psychologically to compete at a high level. And that's all stuff that we're, we're, we're bringing in, in, in the grassroots and development qualification, certainly because it's, it's too late. If the player is already really well developed and down the line and, and, and hasn't been working on those skills, it's got to be proactive. Yeah. No, look, there's a lot going on for a coach. You definitely. They have to learn a lot and understand a lot, but the more they understand, the better then they can they can guide their player in the right direction, which is great. But no, I think there's a lot being learned there, Marilyn. You're doing a good job. Marilyn, we've talked about the planning of success in tennis, but how do we secure it? So there's a few things I, I think that each nation needs in place to secure the future tennis. You know, it's a grassroots and participation game and a performance and athlete development game. And the first and most fundamental building block for me is that competition drives the sport. So healthy competition structures that start out, you know, as you begin tennis, fun, recreational, team-based competition, regularly available to keep lots of players in the game and having fun. Team-based is shown to be what certainly females prefer 
Um, you know, if you, you win or lose a few matches, you're sort of protected by that team culture. And as you go up the player development period, then you need to see regularly the best be best uh, entry level to local, to regional, to national and international tournaments. So, you know, it's interesting that Europe has had most of the top 100 players for quite some time now. And I, I, I genuinely, I don't have research to back it up, but I genuinely think Tennis Europe and the, you know, that's made a big difference having those tournaments in place at the young age, helping people to develop. So great tournament structure and competition is vital. You know, something that Spain does really well. They've, you know, if, if you want to play professional tournaments, you can go week in, week out down the coast. It costs you nothing. They're very accessible and being able to access competition is vital. The other stuff, I think, you know, facilities to enable play. I think that's something that all national governing bodies need to look at. And that's where coaches operate. But, you know, both the physical journey and experience. So, you know, the court's in good shape. Obviously, that's important. But the, the, the online and digital journey to getting to court has got to be convenient and easy. And I think national governing bodies need to focus on that hugely because there's so many things that tennis is competing with you got to make it convenient, bookable online and gate access systems where, you know, you book a court online and you get a PIN number and email and you just type that number in and you go in the gate and you play. That's so, so important to make it easy. And that small fee for the court is really important because it means in a decade there'll be money to reinvest in, in, in maintaining that court. Uh, you know, we need to move beyond the kind of the keys in the local shop and you have to walk down and pick up the key and then the shops close. You know, that's the world I, I grew up in. And, you know, if the tennis courts weren't accessible, you didn't play that day. Whereas that digital journey can make uh, a big difference. And I think that's something as well that NGBs and federations need to look at to secure the future is making it easy to play. And when you do play competitions there and accessible and, and then obviously great coaching is probably the final part of that puzzle, I would say, to secure the future of tennis. And have you done any research in the type of courts? I know in Ireland we moan a lot about Savannah courts. Savannah courts, they don't help the game. We need more indoors. And I know now things are slowly starting to change. A few more these great clay courts coming in. But do they undermine the, the moving forward of the game, artificial grass courts? It's a good question. I'm not aware of any research, but I certainly, there's two things, you know, Savannah is the positives are that you can play when it's wet. And in Ireland, that's pretty much all the time. <laughs> it's not too different in England either. So that's a huge positive because you're getting that pyramid at the bottom, the base being able to play regularly, but you do need a surface that is probably more reflecting of, of what's happening when you're, you're playing competitions abroad. So, you know, indoor acrylic is, is critical, but expensive your clay courts are great because clay slows the ball down it kind of checks and bites as it hits so the rally slow down which helps children to develop and learn how to construct a point as opposed to just try and slap winners and rely on the surface being really fast so it is important for your all-round game development to play on slower and faster surfaces savannah and astro is faster i'm not aware of any research that shows you know you can't really become a pro because you play on Savannah. I don't think there's anything like that. But, you know, like it's like anything in, in life, a good balance and variety is key. And if you only play on Savannah, I think that's probably not healthy. You definitely need to play on some acrylic hard and, and some clay. But, but generally, it's the speed and pace is what you need very varied experience of. Great. Thank you very much. L let me end this question. Nothing got to do with coaching whatsoever. 
But something I'm going to start asking most of our guests, totally out there, who is your goat? Who is my goat? Like my greatest of all time. Yes. For, in a tennis perspective, I think it has to be for me um, Nadal. Okay. I think the the way he plays, obviously, I, I love that. But you know, he's arguably him, Djokovic, and Federer are on a par in terms of what they've achieved in tennis. But how he is as a person, I think, is what separates him from others. You know, he's he's such a modest, down to earth guy, despite being an absolute superstar. He just seems to have really good values, and I think he's a great role model for kids. Certainly, that would be he'd be my favorite player, and. You know, on the female side, I think probably the most exciting player for me at the moment would be Naomi Osaka. I think, again, great role model, very, very sort of, I guess, you know, exciting game, hits the ball extremely clean and well. If you watch him, Naomi's body language when she's playing, you can learn a lot. It's just so positive and consistent all the time. I think that's something that kids can learn a lot of, especially in sort of under 10, 12 and 14 space. And she's using her voice for good as well. So I think they're, they're for me, the two goats, although maybe Naomi's a bit young to be considered a goat, but that's certainly my, my views anyway. I did see a video yesterday on, on social media of Naomi where she was she was superstitious and jumping over to Melbourne yes. right on the back of the court. It was kind of, I'd never, I hadn't spotted it. And somebody goes, watch this. And it's kind of crazy. You know, it's a big, it's a big sign. That's where they hang around a lot in the back of the court. So I'm going to be curious her next round match, how she handles it, getting deep balls, if she's trying to jump out of it or not. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I think Rafa's the same. He avoids the white lines. But I think once play is on, they, they don't think about that. Um, but certainly in between points, it feels like there's a few superstitions floating around yeah thanks a lot Marilyn really enjoyed that chat and the insight into your world at the LTA and hope to hear more from you in the future brilliant uh, Fabio thanks for having me and um, I'm sure we'll, we'll see each other soon really hope you enjoyed that episode it was great to see what Merlin is doing with the LTA to help secure the future of British tennis and keep coaching standards high I'll be back next week and until then goodbye goodbye